Hello, and welcome to episode three of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And I'm Christine Van Dyne, the Canadian Constitution Foundation's litigation director. Joanna is away this week. In today's episode, we'll fill you in on the disappointing ruling and the judicial review of the College of Psychologists' decision to discipline Jordan Peterson. And we'll talk about a new court decision that finds secretly recording consensual sex is a form of sexual assault. We'll share our bad legal takes of the week, where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions that didn't quite land. But first, let's talk about the latest in government travel bans. Josh, why don't you fill us in on that? Yeah, so if you thought we'd get a break from travel bans post-COVID, it seems you were mistaken. We now have wildfire travel bans instead. As you know, Christine, because you were recently out there on vacay, uh, the Okanagan region of BC has been experiencing some pretty horrific wildfires this summer. It's terrible. It's so sad. Yeah, I don't want to make light of them. It's really, really awful. Like, you know, things are improving now, thank God. But there have been tens of thousands of people evacuated. And I just saw that more than 100 people's houses have been confirmed burned. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really terrible. Yeah, and it's such a beautiful place. Yeah, but, um, you know, one lesson that we learned from COVID is that even when there are real emergencies like this, if you give governments an inch, sometimes they take a mile. And so I think it's important just to, you know, step back and analyze whether the emergency orders uh, that are being made in emergencies like this go go too far in limiting people's rights or not. You know, for example, you'll remember back during COVID, the Canada-US border was shut for way, way longer than that it made made sense for it to be, um, you know, that separated families. It had a big impact on small businesses, and it really just didn't need to last nearly as long as it did. So, you know, it was good to see, I think, actually, that BC, when they put out an emergency order just a few days ago now that restricted non-essential tourism to um, to the Okanagan region, it was quite limited in time and scope. This order had a very specific rationale, which was to clear space in hotels for firefighters and evacuees to sleep in. It banned tourism, but only in six cities, which were, you know, very close to the fires and that have really large numbers of of overnight accommodations. And it was put in place for just two weeks, you know, with carve outs for things like funerals. And guess what? Yesterday, I saw after just five days, the minister, Bowen Ma, rescinded most of this order. So... You know, I kind of want to give credit where credit's due because this order was was really limited and didn't last a day longer than necessary. And that's it like makes a- sense to me. It totally makes sense. I mean, they had devastating fires. It makes sense that they would say, "Don't come on vacation here." Yeah, exactly. So, um, you know, we're we're often quite skeptical as civil libertarians of these types of orders, but there are just cases where they, the government has to act, and as long as they restrict, you know, liberty in mobility rights as little as possible, then these orders are, can be justified. And it just, it's such a big contrast between this order and what we saw back in Nova Scotia in May. So um, I don't know if you recall, I was like really hyped up about this. At the I time. remember, I do remember. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So back in May, Nova Scotia had awful wildfires, just like British Columbia is experiencing right now, you know, similar number of homes burned uh, about 150 in the Halifax area. So that was like a real big emergency too. 
But, you know, the provincial government went kind of totally crazy and they imposed a, a fire ban, which is fine. That's perfectly reasonable. But they outlawed hiking, camping, fishing, using vehicles of any kind in forested areas of the province. They said you can't host people in wooded areas of the province, whether you're you know, a private or public operator. And they said these restrictions are going to last until at least June 25th. So yeah, they just banned going into the woods in the entire province, which seemed like more than was necessary. It was it was way more than necessary. And I don't think people realized this at the time, but not only was it was it way too far in scope, but it was also initially supposed to last 25 days and it was for the whole province. And the whole province wasn't experiencing high fire risk at that time. There was a whole region of the province out, out in Cape Breton where it was moderate fire risk. It was kind of like normal fire risk. If they were completely banned from, you know, going hiking, fishing, camping too. And so, you know, that order got rescinded early too, which is good, but, you know, it made me worried that, that we're going to see more and more of these um, sort of overbroad bans. And uh, if we do start seeing more and more of these bans, you know, COVID might come back again this winter. Everybody seems to be talking oh, about that. Please no. If if we do see these bans start creeping back, you know, I'm a little worried that the courts are are not going to to stand in their way. And I say that because of uh, the Taylor and Newfoundland decision, which was probably the most high profile case dealing with these travel bans. And uh, we just heard basically that um, that the appeal. Well, why don't you tell us about that, Christine? It, it sounds like the court just punted the issue, right? Yeah, so I, I actually know a good deal about this case, uh, Taylor, this Taylor Newfoundland case, because Joanna Barron and I, who's not here today on the podcast, but we have written a book about the pandemic and pandemic civil liberties cases, and Taylor is one of them. So long story short, Kim Taylor is a woman who was living in Nova Scotia, and her mother was living in Newfoundland, and her mother passed away suddenly. Uh, in Newfoundland in in May of 2020, which was at the very beginning of the pandemic, the height of the first lockdown. And as you described with Nova Scotia's reaction to uh, the fires here in this most recent instance, the East Coast really, you know, goes full out on these restrictions and, and Newfoundland went full out on pandemic related restrictions. So Kim, Miss Kim Taylor, after her, her mother passed away, she wanted, obviously, to go to her mother's funeral. So she began immediately self-isolating in Nova Scotia. She came up with a plan to go to the funeral, which included arriving at the airport, having a car left for her at the airport to get into, then to drive to her uh, her parents' house to go immediately into the basement alone without interacting with anyone and self-isolating there for 14 days. She coordinated with the funeral home director to schedule the funeral for the days after she had completed the quarantine. And she had this whole plan. She submitted an exemption form to Newfoundland, to the government, to enter Newfoundland. They didn't reply. She sent a follow-up to ensure that the request had been received and the government denied her request to go to her own mother's funeral. She was being blocked by this interprovincial travel ban that had been imposed by Newfoundland's government in 2020. Uh, she obviously was devastated. She wanted to go to her mother's funeral, as all of us would want to do. So 
she challenged the travel ban in part on the grounds that it violated her mobility rights under section six of the charter. And it also, she argued, violated section seven of the charter, as well as she also made arguments on division of power. The trial decision was interesting because it recognized that section six of the charter guarantees the right to travel anywhere in Canada. And but but the judge found that the travel ban was demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society, which is section one of our charter, which I've talked about many, many times It allows the government to impose reasonable limits on our rights. So they they did not they found that her section six right was engaged but that it was a, a, dem, a demonstrably justified limit. It also, despite previous case law, found that um, you know her Section 7 right to, this existing case law says that the Section 7 right to liberty engages some degree of mobility rights, but the, the judge still in this case rejected the argument that Section 7 was engaged. So the Canadian Civil Liberties Association took up this case and they appealed the decision. We have now just received the result in that appeal, which is that the case is moot, as you said, that they have they have kicked the can. Uh, the court said that there is no live issue and they didn't think it was worth using resources to decide the case. This is interesting because both the government and the CCLA asked the court to decide the appeal because they said it was an important issue, but the court did not agree. They did not want to hear it. So that is what happened in, in the Taylor case. Uh, Josh, is there anything you want to add to that one? Oh, yeah. So so I took a quick look at this and it's, uh, you know, the court has discretion to, to decide what's moot and not what's not moot. But this was a really um they must have really not wanted to to get into this stuff because, like I say, both parties were really kind of raring to go. There's a pretty clear legal dispute here about, you know, where mobility rights uh, actually exist in the charter. And they made the argument that, you know, this is going to come back, like we're going to have to deal with these restrictions again, because, you know, the, as soon as some variant of COVID comes back and it starts uh, leading to people in hospitals. A province like Newfoundland is going to close their border again. So it would have been nice if the court could uh, could give us some judgment ahead of time, so that we know going into the next emergency whether um, whether this stuff is allowed or not. So I'm really kind of disappointed that they didn't uh, take a closer look at this. Um, but enough about the pandemic. Um, everyone's sick of sick of talking about that. I'm sure we'll be talking about it again a month from now. Let's let's talk about uh, your news headline this week, Christine. Yeah, so my news headline is a is a pretty gross one. It's a case called Aaron Rockburn, and it involves this dude, Jacob Rockburn in Ottawa, who has just been sentenced to seven years in prison for sexual assault. So let's talk about the case. He had consensual sex with two different women on two different occasions. And during those sexual encounters, he recorded them secretly. And after recording them, at some point, he also uploaded the videos to Pornhub with really disgusting and degrading video titles, as I think is, is common on Pornhub, actually. But yeah, he he did not get their consent to either record these videos or to upload the videos to Pornhub. 
And Pornhub now says that they have taken the videos down, but they've already been viewed many, many times, downloaded hundreds of times. And the women, the victims in this case, say that they have been traumatized. One says she has PTSD and she has trouble forming relationships and she has been psychologically harmed. And I absolutely take her at her word. This sounds horrible. This man is disgusting. He also had been arrested on another occasion for, I think, groping a a young woman. I think she might have been a minor. So the the, the stuff that he said in trial was crazy. It was just really absurd. He said that he assumed that these women knew they were being recorded. Apparently there was a five inch camera in his bedroom, which he said was for security reasons. Super weird. But worse, he said he uploaded the videos to Pornhub because he was running out of storage space on his phone. So he basically thought Pornhub could work like his own personal storage cloud. Totally whack, like crazy, crazy stuff that he's saying. So no one believed this. He he was charged with a variety of different things. This is criminal conduct, clearly. Uh, but I don't think that I'm comfortable calling it sexual assault. And that's what he was charged with as, as well as voyeurism. And he was convicted of sexual assault. Um, there is this notion that, uh, and, and legal principle that, Sexual assault can occur when consent is vitiated by fraud. And there was recently a case at the Supreme Court about non-consensual condom removal. This is a separate case. It's referred to as the stealthing case, but it's not what I think of as stealthing. Stealthing to me is this idea of a man taking off a condom mid-sex in the middle of a sexual act when the his partner can't see that the condom is being removed. Uh, that's not actually what happened in this Supreme Court case. What happened there was the, the his partner, this woman, consented to sex. This was their first encounter. And she asserted many times that it needed to be sex with a condom. So they had sex. He wore a condom. The couple fell asleep. And they woke up in the night to have sex again just a few hours later. And the allegation is that the man made a movement towards the bedside, the nightstand, like he was reaching for and putting on a condom, but he didn't actually put one on. Even though only a few hours had passed and nothing had changed about her assertion for this need for a condom. And the court, the Supreme Court in that case did find that this conduct could amount to sexual assault. And a lot of the focus on the case was this strong connection to physical risk. For example, uh, unprotected sex can cause uh, sexually transmitted diseases. It can lead to pregnancy that has serious uh, impacts on a woman's body. But I don't think that in this case, in the Rockburn case, there is that connection to physical harm and the act of secret recording here. And I absolutely take the victims at their word that there was psychological harm. It sounds terrible. It sounds criminal. But we know that many things related to sexual and romantic relationships can cause psychological harm. And the sexual assault connection, I think, needs to relate to physical bodily harm. And I worry about expanding it to include psychological harm, especially when there are already criminal code offenses like voyeurism and non-consensual distribution of intimate images here that cover what he did. 
as well as civil law remedies. Josh, why don't you talk about that? I know that there are some civil law remedies that could be available here. Not that I think this man has very deep pockets to get damages from, but um, there are remedies. Ontario and Alberta have recently started recognizing this tort called public disclosure of embarrassing private facts, and that uh, would appear to apply here. This tort was first recognized in Ontario in a case where a woman who had just turned 18 uh, left her hometown and went to university, and she was pressured while she was there by a man back in her hometown to you know, record an intimate video. And she did. She sent it to him uh, just for him to to see. And as soon as she sent it, he posted it online and he showed it to all his friends. And they can you imagine like it's just it's just like and this this is not a child. This is someone, you know, around the age of 18. Right. As you can imagine, you know, she's in her first semester of university, which is a really stressful time. And all her friends are contacting her, telling her about this video. And so that just caused immense, immense anguish, immense emotional harm. She's worrying, you know, did her, did her parents see it? Are employers going to see it? And so she sued and the judge recognized that this was a tort and uh, recognized a tort that hadn't been recognized in Ontario before. Uh, this is public disclosure of embarrassing private facts and ordered this, this, uh, this jerk to pay $100,000 plus costs. And that that sort of that that makes sense to me because you know common law judges can come up with new torts and um, order people to pay damages, but crimes lead to jail time and they can lead to you know years in prison. So that's a that's a whole different thing constitutionally that I really do think we should be leaving up to legislatures. Yeah, just one aside: these cases are often called revenge porn, and I I think that there's a problem using that term. A lot of people have a problem using that term, actually, because porn is something that is consensual. It's something that you are compensated for, like doing adult film work is something that people make a living doing, and this is this is not the same thing as porn at all. It's a it's a form of you know, trying to hurt your partner or, or a former partner by disclosing intimate images. And, and it's, it's not, it's not at all the same thing, but let's move on from this case. I, I'm going to give the freedom update for this week, which is if anyone watches our YouTube channel or they uh, read any newspaper, they might know about this case. It is about none other than Jordan Peterson. And I have an op-ed in the national post this week about the decision that came out in the fight between Peterson and the College of Psychologists of Ontario over his, let's call them his mean tweets. So a brief recap for those of you who have not been following this legal saga closely, the College of Psychologists, which is the regulator for clinical psychologists like Dr. Peterson, they ordered Peterson to take mandatory training in professionalism in public statements and the training is for an indeterminate amount of time, and it's at Dr. Peterson's own expense. And the order came following some controversial public statements Dr. Peterson had made on social media, on Twitter, on YouTube, on the Joe Rogan podcast, things like that. And look, I'm not saying we have to agree with what Dr. Peterson said or like how he said it, but the issue here is whether or not his regulator can impose essentially penalties for what he said 
statements that had no relationship to the practice of psychology and where the complaints about his mean tweets were made by members of the public, not by any individuals who Dr. Peterson had ever treated as a patient or even the people he was making comments about. They were just, you know, random members of the public who don't like Jordan Peterson. So at a very high level, Jordan Peterson lost. The Ontario Divisional Court dismissed his judicial review and they upheld the College of Psychologists order that he take training in professionalism and communication in public statements. The court described the case as a clash between a regulated professional's right to speak in a certain manner and the regulator's power to require members to moderate that speech. But I think that the decision gets the balance wrong on freedom of expression. In particular, it connects the off-duty speech of Dr. Peterson that is unrelated to the practice of psychology with hypothetical and unproven harm to the public and the profession. It also grants way too much deference to the College of Psychologists' decision to basically police the tone of speech, if not the content. The court also held that the mandated retraining for Peterson is not even discipline, and it doesn't prevent Peterson from expressing himself on controversial topics and that it's minimally impairing on his rights. And I disagree with this. This is this is discipline because if he doesn't do it, he can have his license taken away. And the process here is the punishment, right? The, the retraining is for an indeterminate amount of time and it's at Dr. Peterson's own expense. <clears throat> so the CCF was an intervener in the judicial review, and we argued that professionals have private lives and regulators cannot discipline off-duty conduct that lacks a clear nexus to the profession. And we also argued that where off-duty conduct, like Dr. Peterson's here, engages a charter right, like, doc, uh, like freedom of expression, in those cases, the regulators have a heightened duty to ensure that they've given full effect to charter protection. Now, I'm obviously very disappointed in the result, which I think could have a chilling effect on people in other regulated professions like doctors, lawyers, teachers, accountants. I think that professionals shouldn't have to soft pedal their speech because they're afraid activists are going to weaponize the regulatory bodies so that unpopular speech or even speech that uses a mean tone is... Uh, penalized, even when there is no connection between that speech and the profession. The court held that the college, in this case, should not be required to provide a detailed discussion of the right to freedom of expression. They, The college had basically given one throwaway line that said, yeah, we, we, we know that Dr. Peterson has a right to freedom of expression. And the court felt that that was enough. Uh, it, they said it wasn't necessary to engage even in whether his comments were supported by the facts or were an honest opinion, because they said that the concern arises from the nature of the language used, not the validity of his opinions. So it is not what Dr. Peterson said, it's how he said it. And this sounds like an argument I might have with my husband about some dirty dishes, not an argument that could result in the government through a regulator taking away my ability to practice my profession. So I spoke to Peterson's lawyers yesterday uh, after the decision came out, and they told me that they will be appealing. And if Peterson gets leave to appeal, the court has to agree to hear the appeal, then we will intervene again. Josh, what's your take on this? 
on this uh, update. That's, that's so funny that you said the fight about the dishes thing, because, you know, every time I get into a fight about the dishes with my partner, he <laughs> says, I'm not mad, you know, it's not, it's not what you did. It's just the tone of how you, you appro approached me. And I think we all know it's, it's not usually the tone. It's often what you actually said or what you actually did. And that really stood out for me from, from this decision. Like they, they, they say the judge in this case says, you know, this this discipline which the judge decides somehow is not discipline even though you know it's retraining at your own expense um this discipline doesn't prevent dr Peters peterson from expressing himself on issues of interest to him and his audiences rather the decision focused on concerns over his degrading or demeaning language but you know think think about what's what's happening here so one of the examples of what the court said was unprofessional and demeaning language was he called uh jerry butts a political advisor to justin trudeau a four-letter word that starts with p and it's not even that a bad body part. it's not even that bad no. a word he called him a prick right it's like, like i don't even know if that counts as a swear word but i don't so know what, either. If, if you're going to exercise your free speech rights and criticize one of the most powerful people in Canada, Jerry Butts, uh, what are you supposed to call him? Like, you're not allowed to call him a prick or you could potentially, you know, be, be forced into retraining and lose your license if you don't submit to this retraining. Like, what's what's he supposed to call him? Are you allowed to call him a political hack? Like, uh, I don't know. Anyway, it's just... Uh, it's really crazy because now everybody has to fear like uh, is this uh is what i'm saying gonna run afoul of the regulators uh so it's it's totally. really concerning but um i think we should uh move on i could talk about this all day i know you could too yeah let's move on to our bad legal takes so my bad legal take this week goes to this guy called kelly lamrock he's the uh the child and youth advocate in new brunswick Lamrock released this really long report about this controversial recent policy change by New Brunswick Premier Blaine Higgs that says basically that teachers would need parental consent if they want to call students who are under age 16 by the names and pronouns that uh, students uh, ask teachers to call them. So if you read the mainstream media, you'd think this policy was extremely unpopular, but the reality is uh, polling shows, and this is a Leger poll from Second Street, 57% of people support this kind of policy, while 18% are imposed. So it sounds like most people are are, are kind of on board with the idea that schools need to tell parents if, if kids decide to change their names and pronouns. Those who are opposed to this policy, they say, you know, if a transgender child decides to go by a different name, the teachers should comply because this kid is going to suffer emotional pain by being misgendered and you know teachers shouldn't have to tell parents because that could put the the child at risk if their parents are not on board and justin trudeau is on this side like he used some of the harshest language i've ever heard a pm call a premier after uh premier higgs unveiled this policy you know saying that this basically that higgs is targeting children and that he's buying into like far right hateful rhetoric but most parents are are kind of on Higgs' side. Um, I mean, most parents want to know what's going on with their children. Right. And it's not because they hate their children. It's because they love their children. Right, right. And the argument often on their side it seems to be, you know, we want to know what's going on because if the kid's struggling with gender identity or gender dysphoria, 
they could be trans, but it could be that they're something else is going on, right? And they're misinterpreting their feelings at puberty, which are uh, difficult for all of us, I think. So basically, most parents don't want kids socially transitioning at school behind their backs. What this report does a really good job of, of laying out, so it's I, I don't want to be entirely critical of this report, is that um, while courts haven't been that clear on how far parental rights extend, they do. There is pretty clear law on mature minors, which means that you know uh, people under eighteen they do have some level of autonomy for decision making. So, for example, there's a Supreme Court case that says a fourteen-year-old Jehovah's Witness was mature enough to refuse a blood transfusion that would have saved her life. And you know, even though the state wanted her to get that blood transfusion, they said. She has a right to liberty and she can make that decision herself. So, you know, this report points out there probably are cases of mature minors under 16 that can make this choice without parental involvement. But this, where this guy goes completely off the rails is he suggests that um, it's discrimination to not let like, you know, a, a, a six-year-old or an eight-year-old who, who says they're transgender uh, use whatever pronouns they want. You know, he says this is basically a charter violation of, of section 15. I mean, come on. Uh, For a he six knows. Well, and any age, yeah. This is where it gets this is where it gets all nuts. And the reality is the charter doesn't uh, the text of the charter doesn't protect gender identity, and he knows that. Um, it's there's one court, one one case in Quebec where gender identity has been recognized as um, as a, as a as a protected grounds under section 15 of the charter. It's one province and the Supreme Court recently had a case where gender identity came up and Lamrock sort of hangs it on this case, but this case is called Newfeld Enhancement, by the way, and it was a defamation case and it was just obiter dicta where the court said, you know, trans people are discriminated against. They didn't say section 15 applies. So, you know, he may be right that one day the court finds that section 15 applies, but he's he's making recommendations based on the based on the premise that it's discriminatory against a six year old to not not call them by their preferred pronouns. And this is where he really loses me. So the policy he's recommending is the one that they currently have in Quebec, Nova Scotia and Newfoundland, which is that uh, once kids are in grade six, so they're either 11 or 12. That they are presumptively mature enough to make their decisions about whether to transition and you know to me it's one thing to say like that socially a, transition you mean well like soci socially names? transition at school yeah so yeah, use okay. names yeah use different pronouns and names which is obviously really different than medical transition but you you could have situations where a psychologist is working with a kid at school on whether to to medically transition you know with hormones or surgery yeah, and the parents it feels like a little know. bit of a conveyor belt to me from what I have read about this issue. Yeah, it's really common. If you socially transition, you often end up medically transitioning. And I think that's why parents want to know. It's a it's a really a life altering thing to have a child go to that level of medical transition. Yeah. And if they're starting down that path, I think as a mom, I absolutely would want to know. Right. And like, I'm not a parent, but um, I have nieces and nephews around that age. And like, they don't get to pick their own bedtimes. They don't get to, <laughs> you know, they don't get to make decisions about whether to take Tylenol or not. Right. So 
um, it seems like a, a bit jarring that they we let them we'd say they have a charter protected right to make such big decisions like that without any parental involvement. So I can see the one side, like teachers that say, I don't want to out this kid because they have uh, they have really bad parents who are going to, you know, beat them or something if they're if they say they're confused or believe they're have a different gender identity. But um, of course, no one would want that. Yeah. So it's more about like where to draw the line. And we're, we're going to be hearing a lot more about this, though, because the Manitoba PCs, they're a little bit behind in the polls and they're they rolled out this this policy because they think it'll be popular. And uh, just uh, yesterday or the day before uh, the Saskatchewan party, so the, the ruling party in Saskatchewan said they're going to follow New Brunswick and make draw the line at 16. So um, I don't know. What do you think about this, Christine? Like, do you, do you think kids have a charter right to be called? their preferred pronouns? I I think that that's taking things a little far. Um, I also don't think that this is something that is going to happen in Ontario, right? These policies of, um, of New Brunswick, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, I think that Ontario's in the, in the other direction. I think that Doug Ford does not want to deal with this political hot potato that the other provinces are taking on. So I don't think where I live, we're going to have anything like this, this report come out that you, um, this Kelly Lamrock report. So I just, my, my goal as a mom is to have a close relationship with my child so that he can, uh, my, my kids can all talk to me about, about what's going on in their life. That's, I think the, the way I have to think about this issue, but let's, let's get on to our last bad legal take, which is going to be mine. So my bad legal take this week is from the lawyers for the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms, who just received lifetime suspensions from practicing law in Manitoba, and they received $5,000 fines. And I think my bad legal take is actually just what they did, which was now over a year ago, maybe more than a year ago. Uh, what they did was they hired surveillance, private surveillance, to follow around various public figures during the pandemic to see if they were complying with COVID-19 restrictions. Like, okay, that is pretty intense, but hiring a private investigator isn't necessarily a problem, except when you do it for a judge who is presiding over your own case, which is what they did here. They ha had private investigator tail the judge who was sitting and hearing a case that they were arguing um this is obviously one of the stupidest moves that you could possibly make as a lawyer and obviously they were caught the judge saw the person tailing him and said what are you doing and the judge called them out for this they called he called out the two lawyers one of them being john carpe who was the president of the justice center and that's the main lawyer who instigated all of this. And Carpe apologized in court. He admitted what he had done. He said he was sorry and that it was a mistake. It obviously was a mistake. Very bad move. But now they are paying the consequences. They have received both of these lawyers. Uh, not Most of the there were only two lawyers from the Justice Center who knew that this was happening. And they have now received lifetime suspensions from practicing law in Manitoba and a penalty like that in one jurisdiction 
means you may be exposed to having a penalty like that in another jurisdiction, a jurisdiction where it's more meaningful for the Justice Center, where they do more work like Ontario or Alberta. So there is a risk that, you know, getting this lifetime suspension gets the Law Society of Ontario or Alberta most of the way there on discipline in those jurisdictions if they cho choose to proceed. Now, we don't know if they are doing that or not. But if they were to choose to do that, that would be more, that would be pretty impactful on the organization. John Carpe is also being prosecuted for criminal offense for what he did for intimidation of a judicial system participant. Now, I don't know how successful that criminal charge will be. There's a lot to prove there uh, in terms of what was intended by this, uh, this surveillance. They'd have to show that the intention was to intimidate someone in the justice system, not just to uh, do it for some other other reason. But this has done tremendous damage to that organization, uh, the Justice Center. And, you know, there were some really good lawyers at the JCCF. I like a lot of the lawyers there. They did some really important cases. And frankly, I'm worried about the future of the organization. So my bad legal take is surveilling a judge and then getting a lifetime suspension and potentially destroying your entire organization. So pretty bad move. Uh, Josh, what's your reaction? I had a lot of the same reactions that that you had. And, you know, I agree that JCCF has done a lot of um, important work. I have a couple of friends that have done done some work for them and they're they're really committed to uh, to the cause. Um, I just I just really want to know like what did they what did they think they were going to get on this judge and how are they going to use this 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 dirt um you know we're talking about uh and i don't justice. think there was any dirt they didn't there wasn't anything they got from the surveillance anyway yeah yeah we should be clear about that and the justice involved is justice joyal he's extremely well respected you know he's there's the chief a justice He's the chief justice of Manitoba and he, you know, he, you read his decisions. He, he, he writes very, um, very clear and very deeply well thought out decisions. He's, you know, he's a, he's a possibility for the next, um, Supreme court pick, uh, this guy, he's, he's not somebody you should be worried about not taking your arguments, uh, seriously. Right. So it's just a very, very strange situation overall. And, um, I guess it's not over yet. We'll we'll have to hear. We'll be hearing more about this in the future. Look, I'm I'm really sad about this whole situation because I think that we need more people, more lawyers advocating for fundamental freedoms. And when something like this happens, when a lawyer is so reckless and does so much damage to to that organization, I think it implicates. I think it does damage to to the entire movement of of liberty minded lawyers. So, look, I'm not at all happy about what has happened here. Uh, I think that the suspension is warranted, but I think that the conduct here was just really, really inappropriate and unprofessional conduct. It was a big mistake, and I think that the the penalty here is warranted um, in terms of the lifetime suspension. I'm I'm worried about the future of the organize of that organization. Well, on that um, not so happy note, uh, as usual, we hope you'll rate us, review us and subscribe. And just a reminder, you can also support our work by subscribing to the Canadian Constitution Foundation's YouTube channel by following us on Twitter or by visiting our website, theccf.ca. 
The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by your donations, so please click that donate button on our website if you can. And if you have ideas for the show, you can write to me, Josh DeHaas, at jdehaas at thecf.ca, to Joanna Barron at jbarron at thecf.ca, or Christine at cvangine at thecf.ca. Thanks for listening. Thank you.